Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Wednesday, February 15th, 2023 reading of Regional Travel. My name is Don Dean. Today we'll be reading entirely from Utah Life Magazine, January-February 2023 edition, and we'll have three articles. First, the Canyonlands Research Center, Cowboys and Scientists Team Up to Raise Cattle and Study New Ways to Live Lightly on the Land, by Rachel Fixon. Then, from the magazine's Last Laugh section, Utah's Curious Food Traditions, by Carrie Soper. And finally... From the Explore Utah section, Pieces on Various Upcoming Events by Ali Wisniewski. We begin from Utah Life with Cowboys and Scientists by Rachel Fixon. On a wintry November afternoon at the Dugout Ranch in southeast Utah's Indian Creek Valley, the sky wasn't sure whether it wanted to rain or snow. The moisture accentuated the fall colors, the bright yellow of leaves still covering the cottonwood trees, the midi green of sage and saltbrush, the red-brown of the surrounding cliffs and buttes. Despite the weather, Matt Red was getting ready to move the cattle to the next grazing area. It's an unusual herd, a combination of Red Angus, a breed commonly raised for beef, and Raramuri Criollo, a breed from Mexico that researchers think might be key to more sustainable ranching in a changing climate. Dugout Ranch is unusual, too. It's owned by conservation organization The Nature Conservancy. The cows belong to TNC, and Matt and his wife, Kristen Red, are TNC employees, not only ranchers, but managers of Canyonlands Research Center, a facility that shares a campus with a ranch. Students and scientists used the center as a hub to conduct research on ecology. The scientists of the Canyonlands Research Center team up with the cowboys of Dugout Ranch to look for ways humans can use Utah land without using it up. One research project studies how Criollo cattle interact with the land differently from traditional breeds like Angus. Matt Red and ranch foreman Cody Butler wearing warm coats and brimmed hats, got on horseback to round up the cattle. Butler gathered up four that had strayed from the group, while Matt drove the main herd. Mother cows mooed for their calves as the group trotted across the rocky shrubland. Criollos are descendants of the first cattle brought to the Americas by Spanish explorers as early as Columbus's second voyage in 1493. Isolated for hundreds of years in remote regions of Mexico, they evolved unique characteristics that make them a viable alternative to conventional breeds. They're lighter, meaning they have less impact on the landscape, they eat a greater variety of plants, they're nimbler and wider ranging, and they will travel farther for water. All these things make them well suited to living in a dry region that's getting drier. The Criollos at Dugout Ranch wear radio tracking collars so researchers can learn more about how far they walk in a day and where they go. In another study, scientists are analyzing the cow's fecal matter, 
cow patties to find out what plants they're eating. We want to make sure that what we're being told about these animals is actually the truth, Kristen said. Researchers hope criollos will turn out to be both lighter on the landscape and marketable in the existing commercial chain. If they are, the breed could help ranchers in the region adapt to a changing climate. Matt Red has lived at the Dugout Ranch for most of his life, and he's the third generation in his family to run cattle in Indian Creek. He remembers his childhood as idyllic in some ways, with a backyard full of stunning buttes and mysterious canyons, but it was also lonely. The family was 35 miles from the nearest town, Monticello. They didn't have TV or even FM radio. He first met Kristen while attending a boarding school in Salt Lake City, which is where she grew up. Though she lived in the city, the outdoors were part of her upbringing. She was raised skiing, hiking, and camping. Matt and Kristen were friendly, but didn't date. After graduation, Kristen took a trip to Indian Creek with some friends and stopped in at the ranch to say hello. She made a connection with Heidi Red, Matt's mom, who offered her a summer job moving irrigation wheels at the ranch. She accepted, and that's when she and Matt started spending more time together. The joke, she said, is that she eventually got promoted from employee to family member. In the 1990s, the Red family still owned the ranch, but Heidi needed an investment partner to stay in business. However, every potential partner she met had development in mind. Heidi didn't want to see the ranch turned into housing or golf courses. She found the solution with the Nature Conservancy, which bought the property in 1997. TNC's mission is to conserve the lands and waters that sustain life. Heidi continued ranching on the property for more than 15 additional years, and TNC added the research center in 2009. When Heidi retired in 2015, TNC hired Matt and Kristen as the new director and station manager of the Dugout Ranch and Research Center. When she's not doing ranch work, Kristen takes care of the administrative side of the center. For Matt, every day is different, but it usually revolves around the cattle. He gets up between 4 and 6 a.m., depending on the day's tasks, and might be using a pickup truck, a tractor, a horse, or a motorcycle. The ranch comprises 5,507 private acres and 350,000 acres of adjacent public grazing allotments, so there's a lot of ground to cover. Over the decades, the Reds have noticed conditions in the area change. Matt describes longer and warmer summers. Cool-season native grasses are getting replaced by shrubs, which are more drought-tolerant because they have deeper roots. After long periods of drought, dry soils become hydrophobic, meaning that instead of absorbing water, they repel it. In turn, vegetation dies and the soil is more vulnerable to washouts and erosion. When rain does come, and Matt said precipitation events have become more severe and erratic than they once were. Floods can incise creeks and scour swaths of land. Raising criollos may be one way for ranchers to adapt to these new conditions, but Matt and Kristen pointed out that ranching practices still have to fit within the parameters of the market. 
since Criollos are smaller than conventional breeds, topping out at 900 pounds compared to 1,300 pounds for Angus, they're unlikely to meet the demand of large-scale meat processors, which, Matt said, control the prices of both live animals and processed beef. So the Reds breed their Criollo cows with Red Angus bulls. The calves are sent to feedlots where they're finished or fattened up before being slaughtered and processed. The calves grow to be of similar size to Angus cattle. The supply chain is satisfied, while the rangeland still sees the benefit of smaller livestock. The Criollo study is just one of dozens of projects going on at the Canyonlands Research Center. Projects there examine a host of subjects. Fungus, biocrust, cottonwood trees, flooding, restoration techniques, birds, bugs, and more. Nicole Barger was until recently the research director at the Canyonlands Research Center. She said the location is perfect for the purpose. The property borders the Needles District of Canyonlands National Park, which was used as grazing land before it became a national park in the 1960s. This gives researchers an easy way to study how land responds to the removal of livestock compared to land that's still being grazed. One project both Barger and the Reds are excited about is a summer educational program called Nature, or Native American Tribes Upholding Restoration and Education. The seven-week program invites indigenous college students to learn about ecology and land management, both in the classroom and in the field at the research center. Barger began doing research in the Four Corners region in 1998. At the time, she and other researchers in the area didn't have a home base. She remembers that sometimes they'd use facilities in the Needles District of the National Park. Early mornings would dawn on a bunch of scientists in sleeping bags scattered in the rocks outside the residence. The rangers would get annoyed with us, she remembered. Canyonlands Research Center gave them a home. There are fabric tents on wooden platforms, furnished with cots, where scientists and technicians can stay while they're working in the field. There's a kitchen, showers, and internet. The campus bustles in the mornings and evenings with researchers leaving for and returning from their field projects. It's not just the location that makes the Canyonlands Research Center unique, Barger said. TNC's partnership with the Red family enriches scientists' work. Heidi Red, who still lives on the ranch, has a keen interest in science, and she often comes out into the field to ask researchers about their work and to share her decades of observations and experiences. Heidi's observations are incredibly important, Barger said. Heidi has always been a careful manager and paid attention to what's going on in the environment. If you're going to be out there for multiple decades, you have to be a steward of the land, Barger said. You have to be a careful observer. First-hand observations can complement quantitative measurements. Bringing these two different knowledge systems together is really powerful, Barger said. When you have different forms of knowledge, it speaks to different audiences. I think about these as different types of storytelling, whether it's with data or experience with the land. Matt said Dugout Ranch doesn't feel lonely to him anymore. It may be because he's changed and prefers more solitude now, 
Or it could be that technology has shrunk the world, and even in the most far-flung places, it's hard to feel unplugged or removed. Or it could be that the ranch has developed so many partnerships and is part of TNC's dedication to a future where people and nature thrive, a goal with universal relevance. People are dependent on these natural systems, Matt said, and will be as long as there are people. We continue from Utah life in a more humorous vein, and perhaps poaching a bit on Anthony Bourdain's culinary travel tradition with Utah's curious food traditions. Are Jello salads and casseroles ready for prime time? From Utah Life's Last Laugh section by Carrie Soper. I was recently watching a TV series that celebrates our nation's signature food traditions. In each episode, they take on a different state. Depicting in amber-hued, high-definition shots, scenes of photogenic young adults enjoying a great barbecue in Texas, laughing over a New York-style pizza, or licking their fingers at a crawfish boil in Louisiana. Maybe I was just in a cynical mood, but I couldn't help wonder, what the heck are they going to film when they get to Utah? A ten-minute montage of senior citizens eating Jello salad? Or maybe a slow-motion shot of a heavy-set guy in a BYU T-shirt filling multiple sacrament-style cups with fry sauce. I polled my friends and family, asking if they could think of a hip but overlooked culinary trend in Utah that would look good on TV. No luck. While our state can indeed lay claim to several distinctive food traditions that emerged in the 1970s and 1980s. None would look good in HD on an oversized screen, and most of them still haunt the Technicolor dreams. Unfortunately, of many of us who grew up during those decades, as a form of group therapy, allow me to take you on a slightly disturbing but maybe cathartic historical tour. It begins with crockpot catastrophes. When I was a kid. Every Utah kitchen featured one of those dreaded olive green slow cookers, squatting malevolently on the countertop, just waiting to destroy another meal. You could dump a bunch of random stuff into a single container, plug it in, then show up hours later and unveil a meal of sorts—something like smothered hash, ground beef stroganoff, or pioneer goulash—that you could then glop onto overcooked rice. This cooking method was a disaster. The ingredients were essentially tortured into submission over a six-hour period, with flavors gradually destroyed and everything melded into a homogenous substance with a grayish-brown hue and mushy texture. My least favorite meal to emerge from these devices was stuffed green peppers. I'll never forget the awful reveal. When my mom would lift the lid on two rows of slimy gray-green peppers, oozing a molten slurry of tomato sauce, corn, ground beef, and Velveeta cheese, like a Utah version of those sinister parasitical eggs from the movie Alien. Then we have casserole casualties, a more respectable but still often disastrous cousin of the crockpot meal was the Utah casserole. These dishes could trace their history back to pioneer times, when the contents probably included some genuine ingredients. By the 70s, however, 
you never knew what kind of weirdness you were going to get when you plunged a serving spoon into one of these rectangular concoctions. The surface of the casserole might even look promising. Crushed cornflakes, for example, but the innards were usually a mess. Most often it was a sloppy combination of gluey carb, some kind of limp protein, maybe tuna fish or fatty chicken chunks, a sprinkling of canned peas or undercooked onions, and, worst of all, a base of tepid cream of mushroom soup. My frugal dad was infamous for making casseroles out of random, and often expired, leftovers from the fridge, dumping them together indiscriminately like a drunken Julia child. Twice as a kid, he gave me food poisoning. Once was the morning of our grade school's annual field day. Thanks to his breakfast casserole surprise, I set a personal best in the repeated dash to the bathroom event. Soper's third curious food tradition is salad setbacks. Any random configuration of cold ingredients in Utah during those decades could be called a salad. The ingredients were usually dumped from a can. The pairings were often a savory sweet nightmare, and the base was either gelatin or Miracle Whip, Cool Whip, or Ready Whip. Sheesh, enough already with the whips. We chuckle now about the iconic Utah Jello salad with carrot shavings, but I've received reports of demented ants who filled their gelatin with much more disturbing debris. Corn, diced onion, tuna, green beans, mushrooms, lima beans, cottage cheese, and coconut shavings. My grandma's go-to dessert salad was lime jello riddled with mushy walnuts and a can of fruit cocktail in which all the various fruit chunks had the same flat taste and mealy texture, and then topped with a layer of mayo and grated cheddar cheese. Is it even possible to categorize that surreal dish on the food pyramid? Fourth and final in this culinary hall of shame are mystery meat mishaps. Cheap, textureless meats were the craze in Utah in the 70s and 80s. Spam, corned beef, meatloaf, pressed hams, and beanie weenies, a.k.a. Vienna sausages. I never saw or tasted real deli meat as a grade schooler. My packed lunch was always a floppy slice of bologna, smeared with Miracle Whip, melded to a sad slice of American cheese and a limp piece of iceberg lettuce, and then smooshed between two pieces of soggy Wonder Bread. I was forever jealous of friends eating the school cafeterias, overcooked corn dogs, and stale fries. My mother did occasionally redeem herself in the mystery meat department, however, sometimes making smothered flat dogs, a recipe with no nutritional value, but which appealed, visually, to a seven-year-old's morbid sensibility. She cut the hot dogs lengthwise, splayed them open like patients in surgery, topped them with a smear of box-made mashed potato, and then baked them in the oven with a squirt of ketchup and a blanket of half-melted cheese. So it looks like the makers of that TV series are out of luck when they get to our state. That is, unless they want to do a different kind of show. Maybe a grainy black-and-white expose on Utah's unsolved food crimes? I'd appear as a witness on that program, as long as they hid my face, distorted my voice, 
and gave me a chance beforehand to warn and apologize to my mom. We conclude today with notes on some upcoming events from Utah Life's Explore Utah section by Ellie Wisniewski. It begins with the Canab Balloons and Tunes Roundup, this weekend, February 17th through 19th in Canab. Bright and early at 7.30 a.m. on Friday, more than 40 hot air balloons launch into the morning sky, kicking off a festive weekend of balloons and tunes. On Main Street, guests spend the afternoon browsing the wares of a variety of vendors and enjoy live music from local bands. Evenings bring an enchanting lantern festival, a balloon glow, and even more musical entertainment. Every day there's something new to explore, but the event's namesake features remain constant. This is the ninth year Canab is hosting Balloons and Tunes, and it's proved an inspiring venue for the sorts of activities it offers. Colorful balloons soar elegantly over majestic sandstone cliffs, a fantastic spectacle that pairs beautifully with the wide variety of bands providing its soundtrack. There's always the possibility of inclement weather, but this southwestern shindig would never allow a bit of rain to spoil the fun. They're prepared to host visitors, no matter the conditions, with plenty of activities to keep everyone occupied. Canab itself offers a variety of attractions, including red rock trails, slot canyons, and forested hikes. It makes a perfect home base for Utah adventure, so even when the festival weekend is over, visitors are surrounded by five national monuments and two state parks. For where to eat, Utah Life recommends the Rocking V Cafe. Housed in Canab's original mercantile store from 1892, this historic restaurant was a pawn shop, ice cream parlor, post office, and bank before it became the spunky Cafe Meets art gallery it is today. Some say it's haunted, but that's for guests to decide. Count on a great meal either way. It's at 97 West Center Street, phone 435-644-8001. And for where to stay, they recommend the Perry Lodge. The Perry Brothers founded this storied Western Lodge in 1931 and is still providing unmatched hospitality to visitors seeking the sublime beauty of southern Utah. The Lodge has accommodated crews for more than a hundred films, with guests including John Wayne, Gregory Peck, Frank Sinatra, Clint Eastwood, and more. It's even listed on the National Register of Historic Places. The Lodge is at 89 East Center Street, phone 435-644-2601. Then coming up in Salt Lake City on February 24th is the concluding day of the Eccles Organ Festival. In 1994, a brand new pipe organ was built for the Cathedral of the Madeline in downtown Salt Lake City, thanks to a generous contribution from the Eccles Foundation. It was agreed that the cathedral would offer a yearly organ concert series to showcase the beauty and splendor of the iconic instrument. This internationally recognized recital series, the Eccles Organ Festival, has been offering performances by the world's most talented organists for almost 30 years, free of charge. In addition to the concerts, the event includes master classes, 
public lectures, and open gallery nights during which visitors can peek behind the scenes into the usually hidden gallery where the organist plays. Interested parties who can't attend in person can even watch the concerts from home via YouTube live stream. For more information, go to website Eccles Organ Festival, E C C L E S Organ Festival, one word, EcclesOrganFestival.com. And finally, for a different kind of event, we have the Delta Snow Goose Festival, February 24th and 25th in Delta. Attendees marvel at flocks of snow geese migrating through town at this festival. Visit the craft fair, shop snow goose merch, and more. For information, phone four three five eight six four four three one six. Thank you for joining us for regional travel. My name is Don Dean. the Daily Yonder and Public News Service, this is the news from rural America. Congress reauthorizes the Farm Bill this year, and those who do the work want their voices to count as much or more than large corporations. Farmers and local communities should be the ones making the decisions about what kind of a food system they want. Margaret Crum Lukens with Rural Advancement Foundation International USA says Big Ag already has a stronghold on industry processes and funding and should not be allowed to dictate ag rules for small farmers like contract terms and how they use their own seed. Small-scale farmers and beginning farmers can be at a real disadvantage when it comes to accessing federal resources. Renewed every five years, the massive legislation impacts farmers' access to credit, crop insurance, commodity programs, pretty much everything related to food. That includes SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program formerly known as Food Stamps. It helps nearly 42 million people put food on the table. Extra pandemic emergency benefits help many the past few years, but those are about to end. Anya Slepian has details. The pandemic phase of COVID-19 will be declared officially over in May. Already, some SNAP payments will stop in March, and the pre-pandemic work requirements are set to return in June. This is going to leave many families, particularly those in rural America, struggling to put food on the table as benefits will drop about $90 per month for some people. Cassidy Pont, with the nonprofit Save the Children, says the impending loss could have severe consequences for vulnerable populations. Rural areas have the most SNAP recipients, partly due to higher rates of poverty and fewer grocery stores. Nearly 90% of counties with the highest food insecurity rates are rural, and about one in five rural children are facing hunger. Pont and other advocates want Congress to expand SNAP access and eligibility in the next Farm Bill to account for rising food and other costs. I'm Anya Slepian. There's also Feeding the Soul, and a barn in Fayette County, Texas, has been home to the world's most famous bard for more than 50 years. What I started doing at the University of Texas when I arrived there in 1964 was trying to get Shakespeare out of the classroom. James Doc Ayers founded Shakespeare at Winedale, a renowned theater program. It takes college students out of urban classrooms to the countryside to study and perform Hamlet and Midsummer Night's Dream in a barn. The barn still has all the features of an old hay barn, and it sits in the middle of a very large meadow that deer use, and actually the deer come by to listen to plays every once in a while. Summer performances at the Texas Theater Barn draw audiences from across the country. 
For the Daily Yonder and Public News Service, I'm Roz Brown. For more rural stories, visit dailyyonder.com. Welcome to Isla Earth. The shape of our cities might be determining the shape of our bodies. Several recent studies conclude that sprawling car-dependent communities correspond with sprawling waistlines and children with breathing problems. The effects in some cases seem direct. One study by Emory University measured traffic volume and related pollutants near schools and homes. It found that youngsters, especially those with asthma, had increased chances of respiratory symptoms if they were close to busy roads. And recently, two nationwide surveys analyzed data on 200,000 people, comparing their addresses with their reported physical activity, body mass, and other health data. The conclusion? People living in spread-out pedestrian unfriendly suburbs often weigh more, exercise less, and have higher blood pressure than people in compact communities. Another study suggests that sedentary people might self-select to live in the burbs because driving there is physically easier. And by the same token, active people might lean toward walkable neighborhoods. Either way, the message is clear. It's healthier for our communities if they are more walkable and less polluted. Learn more at islaearth.org. Isla Earth is recorded on the campus of California State University, San Bernardino, and produced by the Catalina Island Conservancy. Because Earth is an island. Do you have questions or concerns about your loved one living with Alzheimer's disease? The Alzheimer's Association can help. Call their helpline at 1-800-272-3900. That number again, 1-800-272-3900. AINC programming is made possible by the Collins Foundation.